Game Cool Books, episode 67, Did You See Any Death? Talking this time about chapters 18 and 19, starting with the suburbs of the dead. The epigraph here comes from John Webster, up there with Edmund Spencer as one of those English poets acknowledged great universally and just about universally unread. The quote goes, Oh, that it were possible we might but hold some two days conference with the dead. It apparently comes from his play, The Duchess of Malfi, and it's spoken by the Duchess in Act 4, Scene 2, I believe. Her speech goes on, From them I should learn somewhat, I am sure. I shall never know here. I'll tell the miracle. I am not mad yet to my cause of sorrow. Heaven o'er my head seems made of molten brass, the earth of flaming sulfur, yet I am not mad. I am acquainted with sad misery, as the tanned galley slave is with his oar. Necessity makes me suffer constantly, and custom makes it easy. I think we'll meet that galley slave with his oar before too long when we go to the land that in popular stories tends to be made of molten brass and flaming sulfur. Pullman's World of the Dead is a little different though. The suburbs of the dead come into the chapter at the very end, but we pick up where we left off in the safe world of the dunes. Lyra wakes there before dawn, we're told. Maybe she had enough sleep over the last few weeks or however long it was. And Pan is shivering from the cold in later parts of these chapters, though this shivering image will come back in a much deeper way. And the comparison comes into the Arctic. Um, Lyra had never known such silence, even in the snows of the north. The sea is still. The whole world seems suspended between breathing in and breathing out. It's a little bit like Will's first impressions of the world of Chittagatse, but more so. Um, we never saw Lyra's first impressions of that world, except insofar as she explained to Will that she arrived through a kind of mist and couldn't see much at first. But that sense of wonder and of eternity almost is carried into this moment here. She tucks Will in with the cloak that had fallen off, his father's cloak, of course. And she imagines his demon there curled up like a cat. She takes care not to touch her. Lyra sits on the dune so that her voice and pans will not wake him. They talk about the Galavespians, the little people, as they call them. Lyra wants to catch him in a net or something, like she was caught back in the first book. And Pan with some bitterness, perhaps, says they haven't got a net or something, echoing her words back to her. And points out that the man is watching them now. They uh, watch the light come up over the world. Um, because of their place on the dunes, they can watch this kind of flowing sensation of light. And that image of watching light should make us think back to Mary in the world of the Mulefa. 
Um, this is an unusually reflective and uh, perceptive moment for Lyra, uh, or perhaps she has just become more reflective and perceptive here. The um, sounds come in at that point, um, stirring of little animals, the breeze rustling through the grass. Um, and they uh, remember Mrs. Coulter's scream and the drool coming out of the monkey's mouth. So it's a little bit jarring in this peaceful world to recall what they've just gone through. But this is still in the context of worrying about these Galavespians, the spies, and their power in their spurs to inflict such pain. Um, it's explicitly mentioned that Mrs. Coulter herself is recently being reminded of that moment elsewhere, that is at the Citadel. And the plan that Lyra and Pan come up with is to pretend, if they can, to make the spies think that Will is so cold-hearted that he would not be moved even if she was placed in such danger and pain. Um, so long as Will has the knife, they have to do what they say, but Lyra is, in a way, Will's weak point. If the spies were to attack her, perhaps they could force him to do what they wanted. So we're still in that standoff, um, in some sense, that we saw back in the cave. Only now it's between the children and the spies, rather than between all of them and Mrs. Coulter. Now that there's light to see, she looks at the lithiometer and reads in her beloved instrument, in that trance she's so used to, the layers and webs of meaning to answer a question how they can get rid of the spies. It tells her, do not try because your lives depend on them. Now, instead of pausing to wonder about that just now, she moves on to another important question. How can we get to the land of the dead? And it tells her to go down, follow the knife, and repeats, go down. She asks with some uh, trepidation, is this the right thing? Half ashamed, it tells her yes instantly. Pan makes himself large as he can, lion-shaped. The man using his lodestone. She can tell that he's talking to Lord Asriel, but he corrects her that he spoke with his representative. As for what they talked about, it's for his ears. Lara, maybe trying to put him off his guard, or maybe just curious, asks if they're married, the two spies. And he replies, they're colleagues. He has no children. Uh, this is not the last time this thought about uh, children will be on Lyra's mind. Uh, Salmachia is waking from her hollow in the sand. The dragonflies are damp with dew. And their smallness, their fairy-like quality is immediately juxtaposed with Tialis's remark that they know how to deal with big people. Again, this is Lyra's concern. She watches them eat dewdrops from the marum grass and thinks to Pan how different water is to someone of their size. It would have a kind of elastic rind. This is a 
rather scientific and poetic thought actually for Lyra. Um, it's, I think, probably one of Pullman's thoughts that he leaves in the book in her voice here. Whereas he would normally eschew such bypaths from the main line of his story. And I wonder if this portion here could owe something with the dunes and the marimgrass to Pullman's book, The Broken Bridge, um, and to his own youth spent on the coast uh, of the south of England. Anyway, um, they are going to um, talk privately now, she and Will. But um, first, the spies make them leave the knife behind so that they cannot escape. And I guess they could have fought over it at this point, but they choose to simply do as they ask. Lyra shares what she's just learned from the alethiometer and uh, calls the lodestone resonator a speaking fiddle, which is wonderful. The um, spies, Will points out, as Pan had said, are probably cleverer than they uh, might think. They might have ways of listening and hiding. Um, so they should be careful not to talk too much about their plans, but just go. And uh, as for how to get there, the knife will lead them. And this brings up another major problem that uh, York told them both about, actually. Will explains what he meant by saying that it would be difficult for him, that the knife broke because he thought of his mother. And uh, he says, it's like when someone says, don't think about a crocodile, that can help it. Um, there's this problem raised here um, related to the issue of the trance of reading the alethiometer and the kind of concentration required for using the knife, a negative capability in the sense of being able not to think about something particular rather than to not think about a uh, successful outcome in, in some more general sense. Uh, they probably were able to do fine last night just because he was tired when he cut the window, but now it's, it's an issue. So the other final thing on their minds is that they'll need some uh, supplies, fruit, uh, sorry, food, bread and fruit. They need to go to a world with food. Uh, Lyra's simply happy to be moving again with Pan and Will alive and awake. And I think the reader is probably happy to have her back too. Now they have their face-to-face -face discussion with the spies at last. They want to know what they intend. And they first try to tell them simply to come along without knowing where they're going, or they can give up and go back. Will wants some guarantee that the spies won't betray them, won't call Asriel and uh, incapacitate them. Their trade as spies is dishonest, he says. So it would make sense if they were too. Um, a promise is not enough. And this idea, of course, cuts against Lyra's whole purpose in going to the world of the dead, her promise to save Roger. So we see an interesting kind of parallel 
in which the spies now are affronted by this slur on their honor. Um, their anger in this moment will be a theme throughout the next few chapters. It will pass back and forth between them and the children. They don't accept, Tiala says, one-sided demands. They must give something in exchange, which is namely their intentions, and he will offer the guarantee of their lodestone resonator, so they can't use it without Will's permission. Lyra tells them, with a glance between her and Will, to confirm that it's okay, where they're going, and why. To the world of the dead, to help her friend who she led into danger. She thought she was rescuing him, but only made it worse. This is very much like the way she told the story to Will back in the subtle knife. Only now the addition that she's dreamt of him and she has this plan to make amends somehow. Will, for his part, wants to see his father who died before they could really get to know one another. Her father, Asriel, wouldn't think of this, nor her mother, Mrs. Coulter, but it matters to them. The spies try to explain that this makes no sense, there is no world of the dead, that when we die, it's all over. That they've seen death, they've seen dead bodies, how the demon vanishes, and ask what can there be to live on? This seems to be a question that Pullman is working through in these chapters. His answer to that question will occupy the middle third of this book. The, uh, again, resonator lodestone, Lyra can't seem to get it straight, is handed over. It's surprisingly heavy. Pan again takes a form of a leopard to reinforce the demand, but really the spies are uh, acquiescent here. There is a give and take between them that's established. That fight will never come, in fact, that they were worried about. Um, they don't know how long it will take, of course. Um, it's emphasized here how strong the spies are to carry such a heavy weight. Um, but they too will need water and food, however little. Their command over the dragonflies is absolute. Um, we get a Queen Mab-ish look at the fineness of their reins and saddles here. And importantly, Will faces that powerful temptation to go back to his own world, to feel for the touch of it. He still has the credit card, could get familiar food, could telephone Mrs. Cooper and check on his mother. And the knife jars, almost breaks once more. So instead of trying not to think of her, he just tells himself he'll look away and do this. Um, this being what he's decided to do, what he's committed to doing and determined to do to see through their journey to the world of the dead. So something about the power of intention there has this sort of counterpart, a ability to shut out um, other possible intentions. This is, of course, what Pullman has to do constantly with his story to tell the main line of the story and leave out many, many other possibilities. Um, one can't help wondering what some of those possibilities were for him. And um, there's actually a, a version of the book that includes what he calls his lantern slides, little bits and pieces of story that didn't make it into the final cut. 
Um, so where they go next is a, a neat, prosperous farmyard in some northern country like Holland or Denmark. Um, there's a hazy sky, the smell of burning, the sound of buzzing, like a machine in the stables. There are four dead horses there and millions of flies, Lyra reports. Four horses of the apocalypse, perhaps. And sticking out of the raspberry canes are the legs of a man, one with a shoe and one without. We'll check, but he's dead with his throat cut. The door is ajar. Tialis reports that it smells sweeter in there. The kitchen is an old-fashioned place with china and apples, and they both are wondering if perhaps this is the world of the dead, but Will doesn't think so. Doesn't say why. They gather some rye bread, cheese, apples, and leave a gold coin. And Lyra, seeing Tialis uh, quizzical, says that one should always pay for what we take. And this is, again, something she's learned from Will. Samaki reports that more men are coming, those who are responsible for the burning and the killing, it sounds like. Perhaps these are an advanced guard of the authorities' forces, beginning his assault and all the worlds to establish a firmer hand, or perhaps this is simply part of this world's history. We never find out. But they make their escape here, and Will feels a new sensation, so maybe this distracts him from other temptations, that of sliding across the surface like a mirror rather than a window, and like a heavy cloth. These images are very telling for the world that they pass into is in a way the mirror image or simply the same world as the one they've passed out of, with the exception of this uh, resistance of the air, um, so that the children have to pull the spies and their dragonflies through against the pressure that's trying to keep them out. And the spies whisper to calm their mounts. Then, though it's impossible to see even more so than usual because the worlds are visibly the same, Will manages to close the window. Again, his concentration in this moment is immaculate. Considering there's another figure there, the man they just saw with his throat cut a man who looks like he's used to the open air, uh, crazed, in shock. So to begin to assuage some of that shock, Lara speaks up here. This is a pattern we'll see throughout the chapter where she takes the lead in order to soothe or settle a uh, difficult situation. Um, she apologizes for their being there, says they had to escape from the soldiers that were coming. She asks for his name and if he can tell them uh, where, they are, where they are. Um, this brings the man out of his uh, dreamlike state, which is an interesting counterpart to Lyra's own long dream. Uh, he knows he's dead and he knows that they are not. Um, both Pan as a mouse and the giant insects seem to uh, have an aversion for the man. Will asks if he's a ghost and confirms it by trying to touch his hand and feeling only a tingle of cold as he passes straight through. 
The man's emotions here turn from a numbness to a kind of self-pity. He says he's going to hell, and Lyra says, don't worry, we'll go together. This is uh, possibly a reference to a really famous bit in Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, where Huck says, all right, then I'll go to hell, as he decides he'd rather be uh, bad as he sees it and true to his friend, Jim. Then um, finally we get his name, Dirk uh, Jansen, or Jensen, a um, possible reference to Tove Jansen, the great author of the Moomin books that Pullman is on record as really loving. Um, he doesn't know where to go, he says. Um, he tries to look away from his own dead body outside, which is interesting. Um, that too is present in this world. It's, it's simply a physical thing, like all the other physical things at this point. There are um, a number of repetitions as he utters that he can't stay there. Um, he moves on and joins a group of people walking from the town, all dead people, and they go along with them. Um, the uh, news comes from the spies, uh, but Pan confirms it. Uh, Kestrel formed, he flies right up high, as far as he can go from Lyra, causing her to gasp. Another of these little foreshadowings of what's about to happen. And um, this prompts Will to ask if maybe these people had demons, and that would imply, I guess, that we are in Lyra's world or one very like it. Um, again, suggesting that possibly these soldiers are aligned with a oppressive church. Um, now, uh, she can't tell because they're all dead. The demons have disappeared, if there ever were any. The uh, uh, kind of corresponding um, reflection from Will is about a person he used to see in his own world, uh, a man who would hold an old plastic bag. No one would look at him or speak to him. And as a kid, Will pretended he was a ghost. He says, maybe his world, that's our world, is full of ghosts, and he never knew. And they, they're pretty sure now that they're in the world of the dead, or at least going towards it. It is very like the living world, and he thought it would be different. But at that very moment, Lyra notes that it is fading away, or the portion of it that's similar to the world of the living is fading. We get another little biographical point from Will that shortly before his adventure, um, there had been an eclipse of the sun. And maybe we could use this to help us triangulate on a chronology for the story. Um, anyway, it's not like going blind, Lyra says, um, because the things themselves are fading. The edges of things are losing their definition. The light is a kind of dying sun, which again suggests very strongly this pessimistic cosmic outlook that Pullman is tapping into here. The color is seeping out of things. The only bright things left are the living ones, the kids, the dragonflies, the spies. And as they approach the group of ghosts, they step closer towards each other. Again, this danger, this adventure is bringing Will and Lyra together and bringing them and the spies closer together, as we see in little ways here. But uh, the ghosts are perhaps more afraid of them. Um, now, in this eerie twilight, the ghosts look to the oldest 
man among them as if for guidance. And he says, we're going where all dead people go. It's as if he knows but can't remember learning. This is innate knowledge or a kind of instinct that's triggered upon death. It's somewhere along the road. And um, from the oldest man, we switch over to one of the youngest. The child asks his mother, why is it dark in the daytime? Again, um, she attempts to put a kind of bright uh, and normal um, note in her answer. It's no good fretting. We're dead, I expect. We're going to see grandpa. But the child is um, not consoled and cries on and on and on. Again, that repetition sort of driving home the, um, the stasis, the sameness, the, the featurelessness of this death, this world of dead people. They're wondering why the ghosts are moving at all. Why wouldn't they stay in places they knew? Lyra says she would if she was dead. Um, and that's sort of how we understand ghosts uh, in the real world. Uh, they tend to haunt a particular place, generally. Um, but Will's theory is that they're unhappy because that's where they've died. And the spies think that some instinct, again, is drawing them down the road. So both a, a push and a pull are theorized here. It seems like there might be a reference to Pullman's very first published novel, The Haunted Storm. Uh, we've got the ghosts, we've got the storm light, but he points out the difference here, maybe how far he's come as a writer. There's no electric tension. There's a kind of, again, dullness, absence of the emotion that there should be for such a momentous passage. Um, from life to death. The ghosts are giving them curious glances. Finally, the oldest man asks them what they're doing there if they aren't dead. Again, they can tell. Um, and before Will can speak and presumably tell the truth, Lyra pops in that it was an accident. They had to escape. Again, escape is the go-to explanation here. And that I find super interesting in the context of Tolkien's discussion of the uses of fantasy in his On Fairy Stories essay, escape is valorized there. And I think here too. Now, uh, we get some moralizing from the old man. He says that he expects they'll be told soon enough and that the sinners will be separated from the righteous. He says it's no good praying now. And it's clear, the narrator says, what group he expected to be in. It's interesting there. Um, one of the chief differences between being dead and alive, apparently, is the efficacy of prayer as he sees it. And this is good um, theology, I suppose. Um, good dogma, that is. Um, but it's connected with his own priggishness, his own snobbishness, and uh, self-righteousness. So clearly we're getting the message that that is uh, perhaps good dogma, but bad morals. Mm -hmm. The um, idea that they uh, are going somewhere is confirmed really only by the appearance of Tialis, who had gone ahead to, to scout, comes back as a little spark, and they're so glad to see it because they've been craving anything bright and alive. Um, he reports that ahead is a town like a refugee camp, 
And so we have a very strong kind of political read that's opened up here. Um, the displacements due to war and violence and oppression um, correlated with the need, the desperate need for a place for refugees. This is a pretty strong thing in European politics, especially. Uh, and uh, I think Pullman is playing on it here. It goes along with his, his strong interest in environmental issues that's represented much earlier in the story here uh, with the ice melting, the bears, <clears throat> refugees too. They, um, they liken it to a refugee camp, but one that's been there for centuries. So it's not really serving the purpose of um, temporary shelter. It's, it's a place where people stay. Um, beyond it is a mist and he thinks there's a sea and the cries of birds coming from it, but it's impossible to see. Um, that idea of the sea off on the horizon makes this a kind of mirror, um, a, a, a darker version of the world of the Mulefa. Again, that, that mirror image quality of the uh, window that opens into the world of the dead is recalled. And uh, the people themselves seem to be changing. They, they lack curiosity now. They're in a dull trance. Lyra wants to shake them, to stir them from it, um, to rage against the dying of the light, I think is the reference there to the great Dylan Thomas uh, Sestina poem. Um, but she doesn't know how how to help them, she asks Will, and he can't even guess. Um, all the dead drifting over the plain towards the source of the smoke. Um, the imagery is redolent of the cities of the plain in the Old Testament. Um, again, imagery of political refugees, um, refugees of war and other crises, climate crises. Um, the smoke really hits home right now, given the forest fires ravaging uh, the American West. Um, and the only uh, thing they're going towards is this kind of rubbish dump city, smells of chemicals and decay, and beyond it, these Terrible, uh, terrible cries of, of birds um, and mist rising like a cliff. That's where the chapter closes. Chapter 19, Lyra and Her Death, has got to be one of the more shocking chapter titles up there with Mortal Kombat and about as misleading. Uh, at least until we understand what death means in this context. Now, epigraph comes from William Blake again, the um, Song of Innocence and Experience, uh, a poison tree. I was angry with my friend, I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe, I told it not, my wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears, and I sunned it with smiles and with soft deceitful wiles. And it grew both day and night till it bore an apple bright, and my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine, and into my garden stole, when the night had veiled the pole. In the morning glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. This is a very interesting poem to compare with what happens in this chapter. Um, also simply with the idea of wrath being not personified, but uh, arborealized or, or made into a tree here, um, which bears fruit, uh, trees and fruit, 
extremely important for Genesis and for the next chapter, uh, Climbing in the World of the Mulefa with Mary Malone. Anyhow, we right where we left off, um, the light coming from fires among the ruins, no streets or squares, but where the churches or other buildings have crumbled, um, left blank spaces, a maze of shanties built of scraps, where the ghosts are hurrying like grains of sand toward the hole of an hourglass. Of course, the hourglass, the first meaning uh, is death uh, on the alethiometer. Now, uh, they're about to follow them, but then are stopped. And here we begin to enter a kind of Kafka-esque bureaucracy of the dead. We can't see this person clearly, but he does seem to be alive. There's a dim light shining behind him that silhouettes his features. Could be any age, wearing a drab suit, wearing pencil and papers, like a customs post. They ask about this place and why they can't go in and says it's because they're dead. This is the holding area, um, or rather this is a port of transit. They have to go to the holding area. I'll show these papers to the official there. This is a suburb of the world of the dead, and sometimes the living come by mistake. How long must they wait until they die? And something we'll see a number of characters do in these chapters, cutting each other off, telling, being able to tell that the other is about to say something unproductive. Um, so Will cuts Lyra off from arguing any further and wants to know what happens when people do die. They go on by boat. Um, as for what happens then, he cannot tell them, and the bitter smile drags down his features. So everything in these chapters goes down, even the smiles. Uh, even the dragonflies are sluggish. They need rest, and the spies ride on the children's shoulders as they carry them. Leopard Pan is jealous but says nothing. Um, now, the smells are sewage, um, the uh, sense that they get is that nothing here is dangerous, um, but that it doesn't make sense. It's absurd. The paper is just scraps that are torn from a notebook with random words scribbled on them. It's as if they're playing a game and waiting for them to challenge or to give up and laugh. Yet, it is real. Now, they come to the other office after an indeterminate amount of time where another man living comes out with bread and butter, doesn't offer them any, simply nods and is about to go back in when they ask where should they go now. They can stay, just ask. Everyone's waiting the same as you. And with that, he departs. We deal no more with the bureaucracy of this suburb. They enter the shanties of the living. Um, the description here, again, very similar to some things that we'll see in Pullman's early novel, Galatea, um, as well as his most recent novel, uh, Secret Commonwealth. The uh, flames now are described as uh, the last remnants of a conflagration 
staying alive out of pure malice. And under these naked light bulbs and by the glow of these uh, smoky fires, we see figures that are not people and not ghosts, but something else, Salmachia says. Um, Will has his hand on the knife, but they seem more scared of them. Um, they're crouching and rolling dice, um, playing with fate. Um, they're all men and all silent, and they do not reply when Will asks the name of this town. Lyra is terrified, but doesn't know why. Pan shivering, whispering no, go away. Um, very like when they stood outside the fish hut with Tony Macarios. The um, possibility that they're specters crosses their minds, wondering if they're grown enough now to see them. But um, again, Will doesn't think so. Uh, because of how afraid they are. Um, then they finally meet a, a real human um, non-bureaucrat, a kind of stolid person, uh, trustworthy, that uh, Will offers to um, pay for shelter and, and some food. They are confused um, mutually at this point. The man because it's as if they're missing something. He asks, did you see any death? And the figures murmur, no. Will says they're not bringing any death, and that seems to be the very thing that's worrying everyone. Um, now Lyra steps in, in her best polite way, as if it was the housekeeper of Jordan. That's Mrs. Lawndale, that's Alice, although we don't know that yet. Um, and... Uh, she apologizes and explains as best she can, making a analogy between whatever these figures are and their demons. Um, when she saw Will without one, she was shocked. Um, but then she saw that they're not that different. And maybe this is something like, like that. Um, she's tempted to say that the spies are not their demons, but their servants. Instead, she calls them their friends, uh, very wise people and introduces them all. And then finally, Pan, uh, mouse formed. Uh, the man is soothed by her uh, harmless seeming uh, and the modesty put on by the spies. He welcomes them in, calling these strange times. Now we get another sort of reference back to Jordan. This place is clean but shabby. Or maybe it is Chittagatze again because of the decorations of film star magazines on the walls. But something strange too, these fingerprints of soot making decorations. Um, the shirts steaming by the fire. And a shrine of flowers with a jaunty skeleton, a top hat and sunglasses. Those bits and pieces are, I think, again, bits and pieces of story that have found their way in here somehow from the Broken Bridge, where um, Baron Semedi, uh, this very skeleton, is a, an important figure. Now, this is also sort of conflated with that Holland or Denmark world of um, Van Gogh uh, paintings, I think, uh, that we had alluded to in the previous chapter. 
Um, this is a crowded little room. There's a baby, there's an old woman, so all ages are represented. Um, the woman's face is described as wrinkled as her blankets, and there's another person there with her, only not a person, one of those shadowy, polite figures. Um, a man like a skeleton, like the one in the picture. Everyone again lost for words. Uh, Lyra steps in, thanking them, sorry for coming without any death, and explains that they're looking for the land of the dead and how to get there. They're very grateful for their hospitality. Everyone is put at ease. They bring out a spirit like the Egyptian's Jennifer, which the spies drink from with their little vessels. They are actually just as curious of her and Will, though. Um, these little people apparently are not uh, the most interesting thing to them. But again, that lack that Will and Lyra seem to have. The man's name, it turns out, is Peter. So not just stolid, but like rock. And he speaks actually with a similar cadence to what the Egyptians or uh, Roger had. Um, he says that like them, they came before they were dead by some chance or accident. And he explains that the death's job is to tell them when it's time to go. Um, they all have a death and never knew it, that the deaths are outside taking the air, but that uh, the death of Granny is here close. Why would they be scared, he wonders. Um, when you know where the death is, you can keep an eye on them. And um, the deaths here are described very similar to, to the demons, actually. That everyone is born with one, um, but their role is a sort of inverse. That when the demon vanishes, then the death steps in to take you out of the world of the living and accompany you to the world of the dead. It says, come along with me when you're sick you choke or you fall, you go in the boat into the mist. No one knows what happens then. No one's come back. Uh, it's a classic mythological image, of course. And um, at this point, they call the deaths in. They're just drab and quiet and dull. And actually very like Will's power of avoiding attention, um, very like how Lyra made herself in infiltrating Bullvanger. They, uh, they don't know when the deaths will take them, uh, but that having them close is a comfort. Um, Tialis seems to think it would be anything but. Um, I might think again of the age of the Galavespians. Um, for their people, they're getting old. Now, they, uh, they can easily ignore the deaths uh, with as little space as there is. And um, Will is thinking, meanwhile, of the men that he killed, uh, how they didn't know that they were close to death, and, and neither did he. Um, the woman's name is Martha, so another biblical name. She passes around the soup, which the deaths only like to smell, and that keeps them happy. Now, Lyra... Uh, tells their story, and part of her feels a stream of pleasure, like the bubbles in champagne. So finally, something rising in these chapters. And um, she feels this pleasure because Will gets to see her doing what she's best at, and doing it for him and for all of them. 
So he tells a story, uh, interpolated here very briefly, um, about her parents being a duke and duchess. There's the Duchess of Malfi again. How they were cheated out of their land, imprisoned, uh, that she escaped um, by rope, uh, would have been uh, eaten, but that Will saved her. He was living with wolves in the forest. Um, and the story goes on to involve uh, a, uh, an escape by boat, Egyptian boat, that is, that she had a, a, attempted to steal back in the real world. Um, and then uh, extending that further, going out on a clipper sailing for Cathay, that is China. Um, the Galavespians arriving, strangers from the moon, um, blown out of the Milky Way by a gale. This idea of a wind or stellar wind um, would be important actually. And saying that Roger uh, plunged down into Davy Jones' locker. Um, so she's taking these bits and pieces, these cliches of stories that Pullman would have read um, that she, I guess, would have as well, or been told. And um, at a certain point, as they're about to be busted out of the uh, dungeons of the boat, um, the story trails off there. Um, Pullman has Will or the spies nod or add details, but really Lyra is the star of this moment. Um, she comes to a successful end of this improvisational story by saying that they came to the world of the dead to learn from her parents the secret of their buried fortune. A buried treasure is exactly what they are going to find here, in fact. And it is deeply connected with this storytelling process. She winds up by, again, thanking them, saying they're lucky to find them, to know more from the deaths, um, thanks them for the meal and the kind of connection that is brought about by sharing food. Now they need information, how to get across the water. And it's the voice of the grandmother's death that now speaks. The only way to go is with their own death. They must call to them that out of courtesy for people like them, their deaths keep out of sight they hide in teacups or in dewdrops or in breaths of wind. Um, but he has a kind of flirtatious relationship with old Magda as he pinches her cheek. This is some of the creepiest language in the story that they must say, welcome, invite the death close. And this falls with a heavy, a deadly weight like stones. They must only wish for it. At this point, Tialis breaks in, saying to wait. He's a tiny, passionate form contrasted with the drab deaths. And she can tell, Lyra can tell what he's about to say. So she interrupts in turn that they need to go outside and talk to their friends in the moon their special instrument, picks him up carefully, avoiding the spurs. And out there is a melancholy sound uh, of banging uh, in the wind. They have their confrontation 
um, they say they have not agreed to go along to these lengths. And Lyra says they can simply fly away and be safe. He raises the stakes here, calling her thoughtless, lying. The fantasy comes so easily to her, nature is riddled with dishonesty. Um, they cannot risk their death. They can be safe in the fortress in hours. And now Lyra bursts out with a sob of rage, a stamp. She says that he doesn't know what's in her head or her heart. Um, that perhaps they lay eggs or something that don't have children at all. Um, but they're not kind. They're not even cruel because they don't even take them seriously. They just go along. She can't trust them at all. Again, this idea of parenthood, of their relationship being something like a child and parent. Tialis picks it up, says he would not let a child of his speak to him that way, and uh, is prepared to punish her at last. She urges him to take his bloody spurs, and dig them in hard. He has no idea with his proud nature of how sad and sorry she is for her friend Roger. That uh, she's seen worse than death. Um, she calls him a hard, a poison bearer, a chevalier, um, and says that she and Roger will play and laugh in this world of the dead. Um, now he is ablaze with anger, and they felt a chill descend. It seems that Lyra was playing for this all along, but dreading it despite her bravado, it's the closeness of her very own death. Now, as Pan tries to push her away from the death, he only pushes himself closer. Um, and the emphasis is on the warmth and the pulse of Lyra's heart here. I guess the uh, standoff is recapitulated here as we have this third member enter into the fray. It's very brief though, because Tialis goes aside um, to allow them to speak. Uh, he goes and uses the instrument. Then uh, it's as if um, Lyra both wants and does not want to go to the world of the dead here. She trails off a couple of times. He calls her my dear. Um, and she clarifies, she wants to go, but not to die. And um, it's because she loves her demon and they go out like candles when people die. Demons return to the air as the humans go into the ground, the death says. Has anyone been known to come back? Well, not for many ages. So somehow the death has a knowledge of time long before Lyra's existence. They um, call themselves their special devoted friend uh, who knows them better than they know themselves. And of course, this is also Pan. Um, 
her special friend. And she doesn't know the death, but she knows Pan. Again, she trails off twice, trying to conceive of what it would be like to lose him. Now, uh, he asks her why anything should be different for her when everyone wishes they could see those who have gone too soon. And Lyra begins to lie again. She says now that there's something she has to do, has put on her by an angel, commanded her, um, but she doesn't get any further with that before Tialis comes back. Um, this shifts to his perspective uh, of her pleading with her own death. Um, the pathos of the moment is brought home in this slightly more mature perspective. Um, and the spy is uh, apologetic, um, conciliatory against every instinct they will go along, he says. Uh, and he closely echoes Blake's language in the poem that he was angry with her before, um, but uh, she is happy to uh, patch things up now, having got her way. It came true what the alethiometer said, um, that the spies would save their life, uh, and they're glad, after all, for that, and grateful. So the narrator wraps up with a interesting uh, kind of general uh, perspective now, that she persuaded her death to take her, where Roger, Will's father, and Tony Macarius, and so many others had gone. Um, they would go down to the water at first light. But all night, she can't sleep. Pan keeps shivering and moaning um, while the death sat watchfully. <laughs>